All right. It's good to see you all again this morning. Thank you for that profitable discussion we had together. I hope the Lord really used this psalm in your hearts this week to fill you up with hope and confidence. Um, maybe you noticed as you read this psalm that it really doesn't sound anything like most of our other psalms. It's not a lament, um, although it does describe some lamentable things. It's not really a praise psalm either. It lacks the telltale signs of praise the Lord or bless the Lord. Neither is this psalm personal. No one is recounting his personal experience here. Instead, the writers refer to the collective we, us, and our. There is no perspective shift in the psalm. The beginning, the middle, the end, they're all essentially the same. Psalm 46 is unique. It's not even a prayer like most of the other psalms. These words are not addressed to God. God is definitely the subject of the psalm, but he is never spoken to. Instead of calling out to God, the composers are just standing by and watching in awe. And they're calling on us, on others, to do the same. Come, behold the works of the Lord, they say. So what is this psalm? Well, Psalm 46 describes troubles in the extreme, terrifying, earth-shattering, kingdom-tottering kinds of trouble. It's a short psalm, it's only 11 verses, and though it is full of frightening imagery, it is sandwiched by a rousing chorus, a call to arms. The tone is defiant, it stares cataclysmic disasters in the face, and it boldly cries out, we will not fear. This psalm is a rallying cry for God's people in times of trouble. Now this psalm might only be 11 verses long, but it's still gonna take me every minute of our allotted time to unpack it. But tonight, or today, we're going to crack this psalm wide open and we're gonna examine all the trouble within. When we're done, we're gonna just stuff all that trouble right back into the psalm and sing with the psalmist, we will not fear. For the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our sorry, fortress. Okay, we're going to study the song in three parts. First the setting, then the content, and then some applications. So, the context of the song. This is found in book two of the Psalter. Once again, books one and two show us that the great king of Psalm two is not yet ruling over all his enemies. These books show us the failure of both Israel and King David to establish God's kingdom. They cannot be the one to subdue God's enemies or bring blessing to God's people because they are part of the problem. The rebellion of the nations has infected Israel too. So faithful ones in Israel had to learn to wait for another king, the anointed one from Psalm 2, to establish his worldwide rule. And similarly, today we are still waiting. We are waiting for Jesus to return and to completely subdue all his enemies and to establish his kingdom of peace and justice. Well, this psalm reassures us in our waiting, and it gives us a rallying cry, telling us how to wait and how to think about all the troubles and anxieties that assail us in this world. Let's look now at the three parts of this superscript. So this psalm says it's to the choir master. Well, 55 of our psalms have that heading. It's likely that the choir master, or as we might call him, the choral conductor, was given a repertoire of psalms to be conducted and performed for special occasions in Israel. Next, it lists of the sons of Korah. 
So these men most likely composed the song. So we know King David mostly wrote books one and two of the Psalter, but at the beginning of book two, you have a small collection of songs all by the sons of Korah. Now, if you did your homework, you'll recognize that name, Korah. So Korah was a descendant of Levi, just like his cousins, Moses and Aaron. Well, Korah objected to the fact that God had named Moses and Aaron the leaders of Israel, and he wanted that power for himself. And God judged Korah for this rebellion, along with all those who followed him. God literally caused the ground to shift and crack beneath Korah. It opened up and swallowed him and his followers alive. But we're told later in the book of Numbers that the sons of Korah did not die with their father. God spared many of Korah's children, and they went on to become doorkeepers and custodians in the tabernacle, and then later they were named as temple musicians. Now, the reason I had you take the time to go back and read that story of Korah is because their story so closely aligns with the message of this psalm. Korah was like the roaring and foaming waters and the raging nations in the psalm. Instead of being silent before God, he raged and rebelled, and God opened up the earth and swallowed him. And all Israel was watching. They saw that judgment, and they learned something about God that day. Korah's sons especially learned it and would have passed this down to their children. They learned to take refuge in God rather than rebel against him. Psalm 46 is Korah's story retold on a global scale, and it asks, will you side with Korah or will you side with God? Well, Korah's son sided with God, and their story is ours. Like them, we have been warned. We have seen God's judgment, and we have taken refuge from that judgment in Jesus, the Anointed One. Finally, what does according to Alamoth mean? Alamoth. Well, there is no consensus on this, but Alamoth has been translated girls in other places. So we can only speculate, but it could mean that this song was intended to be sung by women, or maybe it was just written in a higher range for higher voices. Okay, that's our setting. Let's look now at the content of the psalm. So the song divides neatly into three stanzas, all set off by that Selah. So we don't know, we can't say for certain what Sela or Selah means. It could signal a musical interlude. It could indicate a change in the musical accompaniment. It could just be an instruction to the singer or the listeners to pause and reflect. But let's look at that first stanza. That comes in verses one through three. The first verse of the psalm introduces the main meditation. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The song begins and ends on this similar note so that it actually swallows up all the cataclysmic trouble recorded in the middle. This is the tower, towering truth of the psalm, sufficient to answer any trouble, no matter how great. And the kind of trouble the psalm describes is very great. So let's look at the meaning of that word trouble. As I wrote in your homework, this Hebrew word is a plural word. It's describing a lot of troubles. It's used to describe tight places, places where you might feel claustrophobic. There is no wiggle room in this kind of trouble. You can't solve it by yourself. You need help. Well, I remember taking a walk about 10 years ago with a good friend of mine. We had all of our kids with us. They were pretty young at that time. And we were walking 
along the Detroit River in a really picturesque town. And as sometimes happens when I get really involved in a conversation, I kind of forget that I have children <laughs> and I neglect them. So I'm walking along, enjoying my conversation. All of a sudden, I hear my middle child, he was probably two and a half or three at the time, calling, Mommy, help. And I turn around and he had his arm stuck up a drain pipe on a building, you know. You're like, why? <laughs> but naturally, he thought he should stick his arm up it when he saw it. So I ran back, and he was calling out for me to help him, and I was pleading with the Lord, like, help me get his arm out of here without hurting him. So I, it took me a few minutes, but, or a little bit, but I was able to extract his arm. But Jude was in a tight space where all he could do was call out for help. He couldn't solve the problem on his own, and this is the kind of pr trouble that the psalm describes, troubles that you lack the strength or the ability to know how to handle yourself. But what the psalm also describes is a God who is with us in the trouble. God is a present help. He is very near. He is ready to be found. Present could also be translated abundantly available. And what kind of help do you want when you're stuck in a situation you are powerless to change? Well, you want somebody strong to get you out of there. What do you want when you're surrounded by trouble? You want someplace safe where you can hide away until it's over. And that is exactly how God is described in the first verse. He is strength to pull you from the trouble or to handle it for you, and he is a refuge to hide you from it. That is the trouble defined. Now let's see how the trouble is depicted in verses two and three. So here the trouble looks like earth giving way. These verses conjure a picture of the sea in turmoil. So deep underwater, a seismic shift is happening. The waters begin to churn and foam, and they're swelling into great big waves that are bent on destruction. Under all this pressure, the earth just gives way, and then the mountains topple into the sea. Trouble is depicted as cataclysmic natural disasters like earthquakes and tsunamis. This is frightening stuff. I mean, what is more fixed than the ground beneath you? What is stronger than a mountain? Well, these verses practically scream at us, God, God is more permanent than the earth. God is stronger than the mountain. He made both of those things, and he will be our help and strength and refuge, even if, even when the world comes to its apocalyptic end. Right, the second stanza is found in verses four through seven. So after describing cataclysmic natural disasters, the very next verse, verse four, instantly transports us to a very different place. Rather than a great, swirling, threatening sea, we have the placidity of a gentle, bubbling river which nurtures the city of God. If you were holding your breath in the tumult of the first verses, well, here you can breathe again. This is your refuge. It's a place of peace and rest. God is here, and he cannot be touched with trouble. So Israel would have heard this song, and they would have thought of their very own city of Jerusalem, where God's tabernacle and later his temple was, where God dwelled right in the middle of them. But there is no river in Jerusalem. So in this psalm, it's as if God himself is the river that nurtures that city. But we should also think of the heavenly Jerusalem, 
the one that God will bring down to the new earth at the end of the age. God's throne is in this Jerusalem. And as the visions of Ezekiel, and then later John recounts his vision in Revelation, as those visions record, there is a river flowing from underneath that throne, and it brings life and vegetation and healing to the citizens of the heavenly city. So in verse 4, we have a lovely moment of peace in the midst of trouble. But that peace doesn't last. Look at verse 5. Here, God's own city is under assault. It says, God will help her when morning dawns. Well, why does she need help? She is facing trouble. God's throne is under attack. And this becomes even more clear in verse 6. The city of God needs help because the nations are raging against her. You know, God is still in the midst of her, so there is no reason to fear. He will be her present help in trouble, but the nations are still assembling against God's kingdom, just like we read in Psalm 2. Now, the word rage here is the same word translated roar back in verse 3. So you have the roaring of the sea, and then you have the roaring of the nations. The word totter in verse 6 It's the same word translated moved back in verse 2. So we have mountains tottering into the sea, and now we have kingdoms tottering in their vain attempts to besiege the city of God. So mountains and kingdoms can be moved. But in verse 5, what can't be moved? It's God's city. The psalmists are making an intentional play on the word move here. Only one thing is permanent, and it's not the mountains. It's certainly not the great empires of history. I mean, many of those just lay in, lay covered by the debris of the civilizations that followed them. No, only the kingdom of God is immovable. It will not be moved no matter who or what rages and plots against her. God will come to the aid of his holy city. He is her very present help in times of trouble. Okay, but verses 5 and 6 teach us something about the nature of God's help. It tells us when God's help help comes. Uh, Those verses tell us how the help comes, and they tell us what God's, God's help looks like. So when does God's help come? Verse 5 says, God will help her when morning dawns. So daybreak is often a metaphor for hope, but it is also a metaphor for delayed action. And this is not to say that God withholds help in the trouble. He is still with us in the trouble, giving us what we need to uphold us. But he does sometimes delay total deliverance from our trouble. So when the Israelites were fleeing Egypt, God hemmed his people in at the Red Sea. Okay, they had the sea before them, and close on their heels behind them were the armies of Pharaoh chasing after them. They were in a tight place. There was nowhere to go. They were in trouble, and it was dark. But all through that long night, God divided the waters of the Red Sea for them to cross. But it wasn't until morning, when Israel was completely across the sea and Pharaoh's army was following them across, that God brought down the walls of water on the heads of Pharaoh's army in judgment. God helped Israel at dawn. Similarly, when Jesus hung on the cross, darkness covered the land while the nations raged against their king. They thought it was their day and their victory, but at the break of dawn, on the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead. 
God's ultimate help, his ultimate deliverance, comes after the night has passed and the day has dawned. And we see this pattern in our own lives, too. God often delays and delays and delays some more, and then at the last moment, he often provides the deliverance from our trouble. But again, even if he delays his ultimate deliverance, he is help to us. He is very near to us while the troubles swirl around us. Okay, but second, how does this help come? Look at the second line of verse 6. His help comes with a word. God utters his voice. Okay, we don't get to hear his voice here. We don't know exactly what he says. We're just told how God will turn back those trying to besiege his city. His voice doesn't break into the song until verse 10. His voice appears late in the psalm, Kind of like the deliverance comes late in the trouble. And third, what does this help look like? Well, God's help looks like judgment. When God speaks, the earth melts. So with a, world, he, with a word, he spoke this world into existence, and with a word, he will speak its demise. This melting is a reference to fire, the way that God's coming end-of-time judgment is consistently described throughout the scriptures. And this second stanza actually sheds light on what we read in the previous stanza. So in the first stanza, we saw the physical world, the natural world, in turmoil. And in stanza two, we see the civilized world in turmoil. Just as God's opening up the earth and swallowing Korah was an act of judgment, so the disasters described in stanza one are also God's judgment. If stanza two is the end of the world in fire, stanza one could be the end of the world by flood. But what this psalm is teaching us is that trouble is God's judgment on the world. And God's people aren't untouched by it. So God cursed the created world, and we still have to live here. He set our body, our physical bodies, on a path toward death, and we are not immune from disease and decline and aging and decay. In this world, God tears down kingdoms, he ravages them with war, and God's people are often caught in the crosshairs. Okay, our lives are full of trouble, and they will continue to be full of trouble all through the night until the break of dawn when God utters his voice and judges the world in fire. So this psalm helps us understand that all of our trouble can be traced right back to the Garden of Eden and to that first act of human rebellion. Okay, you can draw a straight line from Adam and Eve to all the injustices of the world, to all your physical and emotional troubles, to all your losses and griefs, and to all your fears and anxieties. But even though we live in a world of trouble, we can still sing like the psalmist here. We will not fear. The earth is not our foundation. We don't depend on our nation to keep us secure. No, our hope for the long night is this. Read verse 7 out loud with me. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So why is he called the Lord of hosts here? Well, this is a description of his strength from verse 1. Those hosts are heaven's armies. He is the captain of an unbeatable, innumerable, heavenly warrior army. The New Testament translates this phrase, Lord Sabaoth. 
Let's read how this Lord of hosts is described in Revelation 19. I have that on your handouts. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, the great host of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You can see now that the Lord of hosts is none other than Jesus. He is the great King of Kings who will carry out God's will, subduing the rebellious nations. He will lead the armies of heaven behind him. This song reminds us that this mighty Lord of hosts is your helper. That mighty Lord of hosts is very near to you and is available to help when you are in a tight place. But he's also called the God of Jacob here. Does it encourage you to have Jacob's name summoned from the pages of Israelite history here? Well, it does me. Because in my estimation, Jacob is kind of the least sympathetic of the patriarchs. And often, the scriptures refer to the God of Abraham, but here we're specifically told to remember Jacob. So Jacob, the deceiver, right? He tricked and lied to his own father in order to steal his older brother's inheritance. Or Jacob, he really loved Rachel, but not so much Leah. Remember Jacob, who displayed a clear preference for Joseph over all of his other sons? And think of all the trouble that caused. Remember how deceitfully and cruelly Jacob's own sons treated the men from Shechem? Why would God help Jacob? But Jacob and his lot are precisely the kind of worms that God stoops to help. God offers himself as a fortress to people who know what they are, poor and needy, worm-like, afflicted, sinful people. If he helped Jacob, he will help you. He will help me. Third, God is called our fortress here. This is a different word than refuge from verse 1, and this is what you need when a battle is raging. You don't just need a shelter to hide out, hide away from the storm. You need a tall, impregnable fortress far above the battle and free from harm. Okay, let's look now at that third stanza. Stanza 3 teaches us that God's judgments are what will finally bring peace to the earth, both the natural, both the physical world and the civilized world. Judgment will be the end of all trouble. So the final stanza opens in verse 8 with an invitation to come and behold the works of the Lord. And what are those works we're supposed to watch? Again, they are his judgments. He desolates the earth in verse 8. In verse 9, he ends all wars. He breaks bows, he shatters spears, he burns chariots, he destroys all the weaponry of war so that the nations are powerless to rebel. He brings their raging to a screeching halt. And what are all God's people doing while God is judging the earth? Just watching. They stand back and watch God reveal his glory as he fights for them and for his glory. And then finally, in verse 10, all waiting is over, 
and God speaks. So his voice was hinted at in the previous stanza, but now in verse 10, at the break of day, we hear it. He silences the raging nations while his people watch. Be still. Stop your fighting. I am God. In God's voice, we hear echoes of Psalm 2. He has broken the raging nations with his rod of iron, and he says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And here, this is where we get the hint of his reversing the curse. He's going to be exalted in the earth. The natural world reverts to its Eden-like perfection and once again displays God's glory. The nations come and bow before him, and God finally receives the glory that he deserves from people. Okay, the rebels never speak in this song. Okay, we heard them talking back in Psalm 2, but they have nothing to say in Psalm 46. God has silenced them, and they will never rebel again. It's God's people who speak after they've witnessed God's judgment. They've been standing by, kind of like the chorus in a Greek tragedy. They're just watching from the wings. And now that God has had his victory, their voices break into song. And it's the same song they sang in the middle of the night to confront their fears. But now they sing it in victory. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So they sing and rejoice over their enemies at the victory of God. The troubles are gone. The city is saved. The natural world can no longer plague them. The earth and people are restored to the glory God gave them at creation. This psalm is all about trouble. It tells us why we experience it. It tells us how to endure it, and it puts hope in our hearts that one day God will judge the world and all troubles will cease. But now, I want to turn our attention to some applications from this psalm. So I had a professor in grad school who sat with me to go over a paper I had written, and she turned to the last page and she's like, well, you just, you know, you just made all these good observations and you argued these points, but, and this is all you have to say in the end? <laughs> like, your conclusion, you should, should answer the question, so what? Or what do we do with this information? And that's what we need to do with scripture after we've studied it. We want to learn, we want to mine it and see what it's teaching us, what does it mean, but then we need to move to the point where we apply it and how it, we use it in our lives. So, first application. Remember that the promises of this psalm are for you. They're not just for some ancient people in a far-off place in the world. God promises to be your very present help in trouble. And all the promises of God are yes and amen through Jesus. So, the anoint Jesus, the anointed king, is unnamed in this song, but his fingerprints are all over it. The New Testament makes it clear that God created the world with a word through Jesus, and that Jesus is the one who holds it all together by the word of his power. The Gospels put God's words from this psalm into Jesus' own mouth. Remember when there's a storm on the sea, and he rebukes the winds and the waves, he says, be still, while his disciples just stand by and watch in awe. Well, because of Jesus, all the hope and courage in this song are yours. You can put yourself right in the middle of the psalm where all God's people are waiting and watching while God judges the world. Their rallying cry is ours. We will not fear. 
For the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Two, this psalm teaches us to expect troubles, but also to know that we are safe with God. So troubles will come, some will go, but more will quickly pop up to take their place. We suffer because of sin. We suffer because of God's judgment on this world. We will be hated by God's enemies. They will do their worst against us at times. We may even die. And yet, as God promises in Luke 21, 18, not a hair of our heads will perish. God is able to keep us through the trouble, and he will deliver us to his immovable kingdom. The night will soon be over. The day is already at hand. Okay, third, use the psalm to reframe your anxious meditations. Okay, all scripture is useful, and this psalm is particularly useful in times of fear, in times of trouble. The first week of class, we asked, what is your meditation? What fills your, what does your mind just fill up with in quiet moments? And I think if we're honest, many of us would have to admit that at times fear, anxiety, and worry are our meditation. So use this psalm in those moments when troubles mount and the panic begins to build, when the foundations of your life shift beneath you and you feel like the earth is giving way. This is your rallying cry. This is the song of the fearful. But did you notice that nobody sounds very afraid when they're singing it in this psalm? No, because God's people are speaking defiantly to the troubles that rage around them. And we should take our cue from them. If you speak your fears out loud, and I think we often do, speak this truth defiantly back to them. And we're going to practice that today. So two pandemics which threaten our lives and bodies into loneliness and isolation that threaten our mental health, we say, we will not fear. To the steady shift of public opinion against us, we sing, say it with me, we will not fear. When your kids or spouse are caught in devastating sins, we will not fear. To financial ruin, we will not fear. When we get a life-shattering report at the doctor's office, when friends betray you, when someone lies about you, when you are mocked for your faith, when another school shooting is reported, when natural disasters loom, when doing the right thing is going to cost, when forced to confront our own failing bodies and minds, when the night feels interminably long, and then when death is at our doorstep, we still sing, we will not fear, for the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, five centuries ago, Martin Luther sat, read, and meditated on this very psalm. And the fruit of that meditation is one of our finest hymns, a song still sung across the world today by God's people who face trouble half a millennia later. Well, we don't know what events in Luther's life precipitated his writing this psalm, um, but the earliest copies of it date back to 1527, and that is the year where the Black Death, the plague, arrived in Wittenberg, where Luther and his family were living. 
So that plague, of course, had a really high and very fast mortality rate. And ignorance about how it spread and poor hygiene practices just made it all the scarier. So the Duke of Saxony, that was Luther's patron, he told Luther, you need to get out of the city. But Luther and his family decided to stay. They wanted to stay behind and minister the love of God to the sick and the dying. And only God knows all the spiritual fruit of that kind of sacrifice. But perhaps this psalm um, was born out of Luther's facing the fear of living amidst that plague that was his city was entrenched in. And I think his, um, excuse me, the hymn we're about to sing, it could be how Luther spoke truth to his fears during that difficult time. So I'm assuming most of you know this, a mighty fortress is our God, okay? And you have the words on your paper. So we're gonna sing them today. <laughs> 